Hail brothers, this is Didact with episode 102 of Didactic Mind. We don't need no education. A very warm welcome as always to all of my long-time readers, long-time listeners and subscribers on Podbean. Everyone has downloaded the app. Uh, all of those who are listening to this podcast on Wisdom, on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever uh, platform you're using. I'm delighted to have you join me again for one of my long rambling walks through the uh, mental wool gathering field, as it were. But there is a point to these podcasts, and I always appreciate people taking the time to tune in and listen, because I hope that whatever I have learned, I am passing on to others, and I hope that you get some value out of these things. Before we continue, please make sure to like, comment, share, and especially subscribe. Be sure to check out the affiliate links in the description box. If you need a VPN, for instance, then be sure to take advantage of the deals offered through my site because Lord knows it's getting more and more difficult to speak your mind and do things with any degree of freedom in the supposedly free collective West. There's no such thing as real freedom of thought and expression anymore. It's all gone. It is uh, quite ironic, is it not, that uh, in this day and age, the Russians have more freedoms than Westerners do, and have had for quite some time, as a matter of fact. I have always felt freer in Russia than I ever did in the United States. And that is an irony uh, which is rich in meaning and also quite sad. Today I want to talk about basically the reason why we're in the, the fix we're in, or one of the reasons why. And it really comes down to a very clear difference in presentation between the leaders of the collective West and the leaders of, let's say, the emerging Eurasian superpowers. If you look at Russia, China, India, Brazil, um, Argentina, well, maybe not Argentina, because they can't seem to get their government straight. But if you look at a lot of these emerging economies, even Iran, if you want to take things to something of an extreme, you will see a degree of competence and skill and long-term thinking that just is not present in the Western world, in the collective West. You see a bunch of utter children destroying the futures of their peoples and reducing their countries to despotism and poverty. At the same time, you're watching uh, actual avowed dictators in countries like Russia and China, nonetheless leading their people and their countries to better and better outcomes. Now, I'm not saying that the Chinese model in particular is a good thing, because it's not. A country that can willfully imprison millions of its citizens in their homes and send drones flying out at night saying, curb your soul's desire for freedom in order to defeat this Omicron variant of the coof is not a healthy country to be in. It's just not. The, the coof is nowhere near as dangerous as people said it was. I've had it. I know people who have died from it. And I don't try to lessen the impact of those deaths in any way. But let's be clear about something. 
if you're reasonably young and reasonably healthy, you have very little to fear from the coof. I was very, very sick for 10 days. Others that I know of around my age were very sick for about 10 days. And then we got over it and now we're fine. Meanwhile, the people that we know who were not vaxxed and got the coof got very sick. I mean, extremely sick. And some of them died. Uh, some people who didn't have the jab, but were old, infirm, elderly, had diabetes, had a lot of comorbidities, really, really got very ill and some of them died. So I do not try to diminish these deaths in any way, but let's be very clear about what we're dealing with. The coof has gotten milder and milder as it's gone along. Every subsequent wave has killed fewer and fewer people. It's gotten to the point now where it's really just a seasonal cold, and I'm not in at all convinced that the coof is any different from a regular flu. If you look up the symptoms of the coof, and you look up symptoms of past influenza epidemics, you'll find the two are very closely correlated. All the stuff related to long COVID is also seen in patients from past flu epidemics. So I'm not at all convinced that we have discovered some new novel coronavirus, some strange new terrible disease. I'm, I've never been particularly convinced by that argument, and I've never been particularly impressed by those who say that we need to shut everything down. I'm even less impressed now. The Chinese have adopted that philosophy. But if you put that aside for a moment, and you look at the way that the Chinese are conducting their economic expansion, what do you see? You see an economy in a country that really tries to keep as much of its manufacturing base onshore as possible. China has always had, or for the last 30 years or so, has had this reputation of being a place where cheap, cheap stuff gets made badly. And that's true. If you read a book called Poorly Made in China, I very much recommend it. I read it some years ago, and it is very good. It talks about the shortcuts that the Chinese manufacturers use, and they are very, very insidious. I mean, if you do a deal with a Chinese business, really count your fingers once you've shaken the other guy's hand, because they will find a way to screw you. I mean, they just will. There's a, there's a substantial difference between Chinese businessmen and Japanese businessmen that I have seen, and that people that I know have seen. If you look at Japanese businessmen, they will negotiate with you really hard right up until the point where they actually do the deal. And once they do the deal, they will honor the terms of the contract. That's how Japanese people behave. Chinese people behave differently. They are a much lower trust society than the Japanese. And I'm, you know, this is not racist or anything. This is just what people are like. They will negotiate with you really hard during the deal. They will smile at you and shake your hand when the deal is settled, and then they'll find a way to squeeze out extra profits. I mean, that's just the way this society is built. And lest anyone be under any impression that they would make wiser or better rulers than the American uh, hegemon that has existed over the past uh, 60, 70 years or so, keep in mind that aspect of their culture. That's not going away, and indeed it's going to get worse. Do not be under any illusions that the Chinese will be good masters. They will not. They will just hopefully be less retarded and less ridiculously short-term 
and less prone to stupid childish outbursts of idiocy than the Americans. That's all we can hope for. They are not Christians. They are at best virtuous pagans. And that paganism is going to assert itself sooner or later with a total lack of respect for the rights and privileges and, shall we say, autonomies of other subject nations. We're already seeing it in the, in the Pacific. We're seeing it in South America. We're seeing it in Africa. This isn't going to end well for Chinese vassal states in the same way that a post-Christian America completely lost its way and has now reduced itself to a global laughingstock. The Chinese will follow the same route and will probably do it faster. Well, let's be clear about that. The Chinese have a number of serious demographic factors working against them. Beyond all of that, and I'm on the record for years as saying these things, I've been on the record for many years pointing out these issues with the Chinese system, with the American system, with various hegemonic approaches to the world. Beyond all of that, look at the way the Chinese have structured their economy. Again, it used to be that they were known for producing cheap stuff badly. Okay, that's not true anymore. And hasn't been true for quite some time, actually. For the last 5-10 years, they have moved into high-end manufacturing and are increasingly capable of very sophisticated manufacturing output that makes them very, very hard to beat. They are increasingly taking on a level of sophistication and skill in their manufacturing capabilities that other countries are struggling to match. They are no longer the lowest cost option for producing things. In fact, Chinese labor at the lowest end is losing out to Vietnamese and Thai and Cambodian and Laotian labor, uh, Indonesian labor, because it's cheaper to produce things in those countries. And eventually, you know, the Chinese will, unless they're careful, become victims of the same globalization that they themselves benefited from so greatly. So, the Chinese are fully capable of manufacturing things at a very, very high level. You do not get to the point where you can produce your own aircraft carrier that is basically the same size, uh, the Type 03, Type 003 Fujian uh, aircraft carrier, which is not a nuclear carrier as far as I know. It's not nuclear powered. I've seen no indications that it is. But you do not get to the point where you can produce something that's as big, basically, as a Gerald Ford class carrier for a hell of a lot less money than a Gerald Ford class carrier costs without being able to manufacture some very, very high-end expensive things and do so competently. So why is it that the Chinese are capable of keeping their manufacturing processes onshore and are not interested in offshoring them? If you look at the way that they have arranged their economy, they have made it very clear they do not want to move their stuff offshore at all. They want to keep all of their production as close to home as possible. They don't want to expose themselves to vulnerabilities in their supply chain. They don't want to move their semiconductor manufacturing completely offshore. They're keeping a lot of it onshore. Yes, they import a lot of their semiconductors from Taiwan and Malaysia, as does everybody. But they're keeping much of their manufacturing talent in their own country. They're keeping their military talent in their country. They're keeping their industrial talent in their country, their education talent in their country. Actually, they're sending uh, a lot of their best and brightest overseas to be trained up 
taking what they've learned and then bringing it back to China, or they're just stealing it outright. I mean, that's, that's what they do. There's no use sugarcoating it. If you look at Russia, you see an even more pronounced trend in terms of autarky and autarkic economic uh, philosophy, which is a direct violation of classical economics of, of Adam Smith, the invisible hand directing everything, and comparative advantage in the Ricardian sense, which, by the way, is a very flawed doctrine, and I've talked about this before, how free trade as a doctrine has some very severe fatal flaws in it, and you can't really take it too seriously. But the the Smith doctrine of doing everything as uh, as kind of efficiently as possible through the economics of the free market is it's a very compelling idea and it's a good idea it really is there's nothing inherently wrong with it per se as long as you remove this notion of national interest the the, the key flaw in all economic theories is that they kind of stop viewing people as people they they view everyone as individuals they don't take into account tribes and nations and the impacts of different national interests and cultures they reduce everything down to what is good for the individual not what is good for the overall group and this is the the primary flaw that keeps bringing down free market thinking don't get me wrong i believe very strongly in the free market the free market is the the open enterprise system is the greatest system for generating wealth there's there's nothing that comes anywhere else anywhere even close to that ability to generate drive and skill and uh, competing interests and ideas, it just doesn't exist. You, you won't find it in a socialist system because a socialist system rewards complacency, conformity, and laziness, ultimately. Whereas a capitalist system rewards efficiency, innovation, skill, technology, training, education, all of these things are good things for a country to have. But once you get rid of the notion of a country, then you essentially have a broken model of the world. Because people think in terms of country and collective. They really do. No man lives in complete isolation and thinks only for himself. That's, that's absurd. So when you have a system like Russia, which is as close to true autarky as you can get, how do they get to that point? I mean, how is it that the Russians are capable of manufacturing some really amazing stuff? Anyone who says that Russia's economy is only the size of Italy's does not know what he's talking about. I'm going to put that very bluntly. He has no clue. And here's why. It is true that in nominal terms, Russia's economy is only about $1.7 trillion in terms of raw annual output, GDP. However, that's not the only story. If you were to measure China's economy in the same way, it's what? 18 trillion dollars something like that last time I checked now suppose you move everything to purchasing power parity and you look at what people can actually buy with that 1.7 trillion or 18 trillion or whatever it is in terms of actual economic output what do you see the world changes very dramatically very quickly Russia's economy on a purchasing power basis becomes the size of Germany's China's economy becomes larger than the US's and the U.S. economy shows itself as being quite structurally weak, which it is. I mean, it's a financialized, hollowed-out economy. When I talk about financialization, what I mean is that 
It's an economy dedicated to making money from money. Capital in the United States economy is these days not funneled through banks to productive projects, infrastructure projects, you know, oil drilling, uh, coal mining, steel production. These are value-adding projects that really generate tremendous amounts of employment and innovation. If you look at the modern US economy, you're looking at an economy that funnels money towards banks to produce money from derivatives, things that derive their value from the value of something else. It's not a good idea. It's not a good way to do things. And inevitably, it results in a collapse. Russia has the ability to make its own luxury cars. The, uh, I think it's the Aorus is the presidential sedan for Vladimir Putin. There's a video, you can go find it actually. I mean, it used to be on Russia Inside on YouTube and uh, RT, and it's obviously those channels got nuked by Western sanctions. But if you go to Rumble and you look up, you know, President Putin drives Aorus sedan, he actually gets in the driver's seat and takes the thing out for a test drive. It's really cool. And he's got, he's got the woman from the factory sitting next to him. And he's like, you know, he's, he's the president. He's a former KGB officer. He's the president of Russia. And he's sitting in a car and he's talking to a junior, you know, lovely junior female engineer next to him. And he's asking her, uh, tell me, what, what issues did you encounter? And she's like, uh, we didn't really encounter any issues because she's like shit scared of, of, of offending this guy, right? He's like, no, no, tell me what issues you actually encountered. It's, it's important for me to know. And obviously off camera, she must have explained a few things to him. But overall, the Aura Sedan is a very good indication of how Russia is capable of producing really high quality, high end products on its own. I have lived in Russia for over a year. I visited a number of Russian cities, three or four, uh, five Russian cities, I think, by now. And I assure you that when I go into a Russian supermarket or a Russian store, and I look at all the things that Russians themselves produce. Yes, quite a lot of it comes from China by way of bulk export. Yeah, a lot of it is cheap, chintzy crap. Yes, they have a, a, a chain store in Moscow called Smyrshne Tsiany, uh, funny prices, which is, yeah, it's, it's full of Chinese junk. And the staff are all from the Central Asian republics and they all speak different languages, but ultimately they all speak Russian. Um, but, you know, these are Kazakhs and Kyrgyz and Tajiks and the Uzbeks and they all come and work in Azerbaijanis as well. And they all come and work in Moscow and they're selling you know, cheap shoes for like 200 rubles a pop, which is nothing really. Um, but honestly, I mean, if you actually go into some of their hardware stores, uh, Leroy Merlin, um, which I think Leroy Merlin, which I think is German owned, uh, yeah, I think it is German-owned, or done in partnership with the Germans. Or you look at some of their um, home improvement stores, like mom-and-pop type stores, where you, you walk in and you look at the goods. These are impressively done, you know, very durable, very well-made. How is it that the Russians have built a manufacturing powerhouse in their country and nobody knows about it, except people who go and visit and take the time to try to understand these things? How is it that if you look at Russian infrastructure, you look at the roads, you look at the bridges, the canals, the railroads, the airports, you look around and you see amazingly well-functioning infrastructure. I mean, Moscow is astonishingly clean. You compare that to London, which is gungy and dirty and littered and 
they can't operate their rail networks when the temperature goes above 38 degrees Fahrenheit in the city, or they can't run trains when there's like a slight sprinkling of snow on the ground. Everything grinds to a halt. It's ridiculous how fragile the British infrastructure system really is. How is it that the Russians can do this? They can do it because they have enormous amounts of manufacturing and industrial potential in their country. Now, a lot of that has to do, in my opinion, with the leadership of these countries. And to put my theory to the test, this is a theory that I have, that these countries which are far more capable of manufacturing and far bigger in terms of manufacturing and really just seem to be much more sensibly run, are led by people with very specific qualifications and skill sets that you don't find in Western leadership equivalents. Now, to put that theory to the test, I had to go do some digging, and it wasn't easy to do. I'll be very honest about that. Uh, but basically what I did was, uh, it took about an hour and a half of something like that yesterday, uh, I went and looked up the educational qualifications of not just the top leadership, but members of the cabinets of various countries. Russia, China, Germany, the US, and the UK, and France. Uh, I didn't extend the sample size beyond that, and maybe I should have, but I just didn't have the time. So my theory here is that the countries that are doing best in the midst of all this madness, the countries that have exhibited the best long-term planning, are led by people with very serious educational credentials and qualifications. Now, I want to be very, excuse me, very clear about this. I do not regard having educational credentials as a stand-in for intelligence. It's not the same thing. You can be very, very stupid and yet still have a degree from Harvard Law School or Yale Law School. I believe one of their graduates is now President of the United States. You can also be incredibly intelligent and not have a degree at all. Um, Steve Jobs comes to mind, for instance. Absolute genius of a man. Uh, design genius, a visionary thinker, a business guru. I couldn't stand his company's products beyond a certain point, but give him his due. I mean, the man was an absolute visionary. But if you look at the leaders of various different countries, what do you see? Well, let's start with Russia. Now, I'm going to put a table in the body of the post on my site. It may not be available on Podbean because of the way that Podbean's embedding works for their own posts, but on my site, it's easy enough to display this table. You'll be able to see the country, the name, the position of the person, and the educational background of that person. And starting with Russia, let's take a look at Vladimir Putin, president of Russia. He has an undergraduate degree, or actually I think up to a master's degree, because of the way the education system works in Russia, in law. He has a PhD in economics. Now you can argue, and I would not debate the issue with you, I would not push back, that he didn't actually write his original PhD thesis in 1995. And yet, as I have pointed out in other articles on my site, the resource-based view of the economy that Putin, supposedly Putin, explicates in that thesis is entirely consistent with the way that the Neotar has run his country ever since he became president in 2000. It is exactly the same. He argues that 
Russia's energy resources must be directed under market forces guided by the state, not you know, just set free to for any rapacious Western nation and company to come in and exploit, but guided under state control using market-based forces to liberate those resources and bring wealth to the Russian people. This is exactly what he's done for 20 years. And he wrote about this, or whoever wrote his thesis wrote about it in 1995. So you see a complete consistency between words and deeds in Putin's case, which leads me to believe that even if he didn't write his thesis, and okay, he probably didn't, fine, whatever, this is what he believes. And whoever wrote his thesis simply put into words with a lot of facts and figures, and Putin, by the way, if you listen to him speak, he always speaks with absolute command of the facts. He always has the facts at his fingertips. He always comes armed with a wealth of knowledge and data. He never just shoots from the lip, as it were. He's not like Donald Trump. I mean, as much as I respect Trump, the problem with Trump always was that he was very blustery and just made stuff up on the spot. Putin does not do that. He is very cold, precise, and calculating. And yet, when you meet him in person, apparently, he's a very nice guy. He's a very cordial, courteous, polite, well-brought-up, well-raised, exceptionally genteel human being. And he is not at all the cold-eyed killer that uh, Senator John McCain, may he burn in hell, uh, says he is. He's not like that at all. So, if you look at Putin's background, that's what he has, law and economics. Sergei Shoigu, defense minister, civil engineering. Sergei Lavrov, foreign minister, international relations and a degree in languages. And he's actually a, apparently a fluent speaker of Sinhalese the uh, language of what was at that time the only official language of Sri Lanka. Dmitry Medvedev, uh, Medvedev, deputy head of the Security Council, background in law. Mikhail Mishustin, prime minister, who also created Russia's tax system and modernized it and now has a completely automated VAT system in place. Systems engineering. Andrei Belosov, the first deputy prime minister of the portfolio in something like Economics. Victoria Abramchenko, Deputy Prime Minister, Environmental Engineering. I think she's uh, in charge of agriculture or the environment, something like that. Uh, Dmitry Patrushev, Minister of Agriculture, background in management. Maxim Reshetnikov, Minister of Economic Development, background in mathematics and economics and linguistics and translation. Sergei Kravtsov, Minister of Education, teaching degree in mathematics and computer science. Anton Siluanov, Minister of Finance, background in finance and credit, and a PhD in economics. So you're looking at people with very serious educational credentials. I haven't read through all the names, and you're more than welcome to go. I got all the data from uh, Wikipedia and Infogalactic, so it may be wrong. It may not be. I don't know. I only looked at the data for people that I could actually find data for and added them in. But you know, since these are matters of public record, I don't think... Uh, these are too controversial, but feel free to go and take a look for yourself. The names are there. The positions are there. It's very easy to go and look them up. Let's take a look at China. Xi Jinping, General Secretary of the Communist Party, background in chemical engineering. Li Keqiang, Premier of the Communist Party, background in law and economics. Han Zheng, uh, Vice Premier, engineering and economics. Liu He, 
uh, Minister of Finance, Technology, Industry, and Transport, Industrial Economics, and a Master's in Public Administration. Wei Feng He, Minister of Defense, graduated from the School of Artillery Command in, China, in the uh, People's Liberation Army. Wang Yi, Foreign Minister, Asian and African languages, fluent speaker of Japanese, as it happens. Now, if you look at India, India is an interesting case. There are a lot of uh, different people there. I mean, the Indian educational system is a, a very challenging one. And if you look at the people who go into civil service, I mean, the the trope was for a long time that the best and the brightest went into civil service. And the sort of also-rans went into business. That's That hasn't been true for about 40 years now. Um, there was a, a very clear reversal starting in the 1960s or so, where Indians started going. They, they began to understand that there were opportunities for them outside of India, because India became basically a socialist country and a very badly run one at that, with absolutely absurd tax rates. So a huge number of their best and brightest fled India and went overseas to America, the UK, uh, primarily English-speaking countries, Canada, of course built up their lives and fortunes there. So if you look at India, uh, what are their leaders like? Narendra Modi, Prime Minister, background in political science. Rajnath Singh, Minister of Defense, background in physics. Uh, Subramaniam Jaishankar, uh, Foreign Minister, degree in political science and I think a PhD in international relations. Nirmala, Nirmala Sitaram, uh, Minister of Finance, background in economics. Piyush Goyal, Minister of Commerce and Industry. He has a background in law and accounting. Hardeep Singh Puri, Minister of Petroleum and Natural Gas, has a degree in history. So you can see that some of these people have very, very serious credentials. Now let's take a look at the cabinet of the United States under the fake president. Joe Biden, uh, background in history and political science and law. Uh, Janet, well, Kamala Harris, or Kamalo, however the hell you pronounce her name. Vice President, Political Science and Economics and Law. Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. Now, she actually has serious credentials in economics. That's true. But then you look at Merrick Garland, Attorney General, of course, background in law, fine. Tom Vilsack, Commerce Secretary, background in law. Okay. Anthony Blinken, State Secretary, Social Studies and Law. Jennifer Granholm, Energy Secretary. Political Science and French and Law. Uh, Lloyd Austin, Defense Secretary, an undergraduate degree in Counselor Education and an MBA. Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, International Relations and Political Science and Law. Awful lot of lawyers present in the top ranks of the US government, don't you think? And this trend carries on very quickly. I mean, you can see a very abrupt change between the Eurasian countries and Western countries. It's really astonishing. Let's take a look at Germany. Olaf Scholz, Chancellor, background in law. Robert Habeck, Minister of Economic Affairs and Climate Action. God help us. Uh, degree in philosophy, uh, background in German language studies and philology. How exactly does this make him qualified to be a Minister of Economics, I wonder? Uh, Christian Lindner, Minister of Finance, background in political science. Annalena Baerbock, foreign minister, background in political science and law. Christine Lambrecht, defense minister. God help us. I mean, a woman is a defense minister. Here we go. Not just that, but 
a lawyer in charge of the defense industry. There you go. Um, if you look at some of their people, they are kind of actually impressive, but the only one that's actually really impressive is Karl Lauterbach, Minister of Health. He actually has a background in health economics and, and medicine. His background is in medicine, health and policy, health policy and management. If you look at France, the situation is really quite dire. Um, Emmanuel Macron uh, has a degree. <laughs> I can't believe I'm reading this. <laughs> I know I found this yesterday, but <laughs> it's just hysterical. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't do this with a straight face. French. <laughs> the president of France has a background in French literature, piano studies, and philosophy. And this is a guy who, by the way, failed to get into Ecole Nationale Administrative, or whatever it's called, the, the ENA, which is the most prestigious training ground for civil servants in the whole of the French government. I'm sorry, this is hysterical. I, I just. Not only that, he actually ended up having a relationship with a woman 25 years older than him who was married with three children at the time, and that became his wife, Brigitte. Um, if ever you wanted to come across a ticket taker, that guy is a ticket taker. No question. He's a former Rothschild banker. Uh, he has no background that allows him to be qualified on anything related to finance, economics, defense, foreign relations, anything whatsoever. He is a system tool to the core. He is a ticket taker to the core. This guy is a joke. And I, I mean, if you're French and you're offended by that, well, what can I say? Vote for some other idiot next time because this guy is just a joke. Uh, you guys have a piano studies major as a president of a nuclear armed power. I mean, come on. Elizabeth Bourne, um, Prime Minister, civil engineering and an MBA. Bruno Le Maire, uh, Minister of the Economy and Finance, a degree in French literature. Now, don't get me wrong, I have actually a lot of respect for the French civilization. I really do. I mean, as much as I joke about them, I actually like the French civilization. I don't like the French nation, but I like the French civilization a lot. Um, they have some amazing, wonderful, astonishing achievements in many different fields. French literature is one of them. I mean, some of the greatest works in the whole of the Western canon come from France. But how does knowing Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas and you know, Baudelaire and, and, I don't know, Rousseau and whoever else, Voltaire, how does this qualify you to be a minister of economics and finance? How you, what, what possible training prepares you for that? You see, there's just this, this massive mismatch between what people were taught in school and what they're doing today in the Western powers, which you don't see elsewhere. Let's finish off with the UK. Boris Johnson, no longer prime minister, good riddance to bad rubbish. Classics. This is a guy who can quote the Iliad from memory in the original Greek with correct pronunciation and inflection and everything. Good for him. Well done. Rishi Sunak, Minister, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, did the flagship politics, philosophy and economics degree at Oxford. Now, 
the other thing to point out is all of these people have come from basically the same backgrounds. They all come from the same universities in the UK. The UK is kind of a special case. Pretty much everybody at the top of the government comes from Oxford, Cambridge, or in extreme cases, the LSE. I mean, that's not entirely true. There are a few from University of Reading and University of Exeter and University College London, but really the top-ranked people all come from Oxford, Cambridge, and they consider the LSE to be like a pathetic second-rate university, which is not true at all. But uh, Ben Wallace, defense minister, went to military school. I have no idea what his background is. Liz Truss, oh, good Lord, that completely vapid, vacuous woman who has no idea what she's talking about. PPE at Oxford. Kwasi Kwarteng, Minister for Business, Energy, and Clean Growth. Classics and History, eh? Sajid Javid, uh, former Health Secretary. Economics and policy, uh, Politics at, I think, Reading. Um, although I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong about that. Penny Mordant, Minister for Trade Policy. Background in Philosophy. Say again? Like, what? Nadim Zahawi, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Current Chancellor. Um, Although, you know, he threw his hat into the ring for the leadership and, and failed. Chemical engineering. Okay. I mean, that's actually a hard science. Dominic Rabb, deputy prime minister, background in law. Okay. So that rounds it out. This clearly shows that the leadership in the West is fundamentally unserious. And it shows a level of uh, backwards uh, backwardness within the top ranks of governments in the West that you do not see elsewhere. What's going on here? Now, I am, this is certainly by no means an original theory of mine. I, I'm just taking a kind of a different spin on something that Andrei Martyanov, Grandpa Grumpus, as I call him, keeps harping on about in his videos. He keeps talking about how the political an academic and media and business elite, well, maybe not the business elite, but definitely the media and academic elite at the top ranks of the Western countries are all really overqualified, overcredentialed idiots. And I think he's right. I think he's got a very good point here. These people don't have any serious backgrounds. And I say that as somebody with two degrees in mathematics and a business degree. Okay. I don't care who you put in front of me. I don't care if you put somebody with a background from Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, whatever in front of me, Stanford, any of the Ivies, any of the top British schools, any of the top global schools. I don't care if you put somebody like that in front of me. I can match or exceed his educational credentials. I promise you, my educational credentials are as good as, if not better than, his. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just pointing out that's where I've been. I've been to these same schools. I've sat alongside some of these people. I've studied along with them. And in most cases, I've not been impressed. I'm just sorry to say that, but that's the truth. I've not been particularly impressed by them. They're not impressive people. The people who rise to the top of these circles are not impressive people in terms of how they think and how they act. The people that I've been most impressed by are not necessarily the best in terms of grades. They're the best in terms of ideas and in terms of execution of those ideas. They don't necessarily get great grades. Many of them actually, you know, barely passed because that kind of thinking is completely antithetical to the kind of thinking that gets you good grades and the kind of 
hard-nosed discipline that gets you uh, to learn the material and apply it in an exam setting. Okay, so that it's just a very different way of thinking. Neither one is right or wrong. It's just it's a different set of pressures and a different environment. You can't say that somebody who's really good at taking exams is somehow worse than somebody who's really good at setting up a business. They're just it's a different environment. How do you judge what is good or bad, other than by looking at what the criteria were for or are for excellent achievement? That's that's just you know that's obvious, right? But if you look at the people who have risen to the top in politics and uh, media, academia, etc., they're not impressive people. They're really not. Just look at the list of leaders that I read out. And again, look at the list on my website. It's right there in the table. You'll be able to see for yourself just how unimpressive the Western leaders actually are. They're, they're, they have no clue what they're doing. They have no understanding of the real economy. They have no understanding of physical reality. They have no clue what it takes to create a functioning, industrial, well-managed economy with a real manufacturing base. They have no idea. Because this, their ability, their, their, their training and their backgrounds give them no clue or insight into how things actually work in the real world. Let me be very blunt about this. I have worked in some of the biggest banks in the world. I have worked as a very, very skilled finance specialist in some very, very challenging roles. Roles that nobody else could do. And I do mean nobody else could do. That's not me saying that. That's Those are my former colleagues and friends and uh, partners in the business saying that. That they know damn well no one else could do what I did. If I compare what I did in terms of raw economic output to somebody who delivers groceries to the local grocery store or somebody who mines coal or a nuclear engineer, especially a nuclear engineer, you know, tasked with making sure a reactor doesn't melt down in the power plant or a, you know, a ferryman taking, um, taking goods across an ocean or a lake or whatever. The value that they have added to the economy is orders of magnitude greater than the, the value that I have added. And that's the truth. All of my training, all of my education is meaningless next to somebody who actually pulls stuff out of the ground. An electrician who stitches wires together, you know, feels death through his fingertips as it were, uh, according to that old Rudyard Kipling poem, a very excellent poem, The Sons of Martha, uh, worth reading. These are men who do things with real things in the real economy. They are far better men than people like Ben Wallace and Rishi Sunak and Olaf Scholz and all of these other clueless, over-credentialed fools. There's another aspect to it as well, which Andrei Martyanov talks about a lot. And I think it's very important to understand the people who are at the tops of their respective fields got there because, in business at least, in, in the commercial world, got there because they have the training and the discipline to do it. And that training and discipline comes from a certain mindset. If you look at the people in Russia at the top of the political class and you compare their educations to the people at the top of the political class in England, 
even the people who have similar backgrounds, you know, like for like, engineering versus engineering, mathematics versus mathematics, the Russians have a fundamentally different educational system. And I've seen this for myself. I, uh, Andrei Martyanov talks about it a lot. I absolutely agree with him. The level of rigor and discipline required in a Russian university is far beyond anything that you've seen in a Western system. I promise you that's the truth. If I look at the Russians that I have studied alongside and worked alongside, they are way ahead of their Western counterparts in terms of the ability to think logically and clearly and their ability to articulate things in a mathematically clear and sound way. They may not have the English language skills to relate these things, but in terms of their understanding of the material and their ability to articulate it in a way that makes logical sense, they are head and shoulders above everybody else. There's no comparison between a Western student and a Russian student. And that is because from pretty much primary school onwards, they're studying mathematics at some level. Uh, now, I personally am of the view that you cannot be truly educated. And Andrei Martyanov is the same. He, you know, he has a background in naval engineering and a master's degree in basically learning how to sink the U.S. Atlantic fleet. He says as much. I mean, that's, that's what he did. He studied essentially uh, sort of submarine and naval tactics and logistics and operations designed to stop the U.S. Atlantic fleet in its tracks. So he knows this stuff, not just at an operational level, or not just at, at the kind of very low level of how you make a particular ship work, but how you manage an entire fleet in terms of logistics. Andrei Martyanov himself, who is very talented in mathematics, I know, I've watched many of his videos, he brings up maths on the screen all the time. He says that you cannot be truly educated unless you have an appreciation for the liberal arts, unless you have some level of an understanding of literature, music, fine arts, travel, um, you know, languages. And I agree with him. You cannot be truly educated unless you have this. No education system in the world captures all of these aspects of things that you, you can't, you can't physically do that. Some come close. The international baccalaureate system is very good, uh, very demanding, and I think a little bit too hippy-dippy in a lot of what it does and says, but it is very, very good. The French baccalaureate system upon which the IB draws a lot of its inspiration is also very good. The Russian system, which is much more kind of science and mathematics-based is very rigorous, but it lacks some of the flexibility that you find in Western education systems. But the West has completely devolved in terms of its emphasis on woolly, fluffy, meaningless subjects versus hard science. Even if you study hard science in a Western university, I promise you, you're not as good as a lot of the people coming out of Russian and Chinese universities. You're certainly not as good as a lot of the people coming out of Indian technical universities like the IITs. You're just not. I mean, the level of rigor and uh, competition required to get into an IIT is insane. And I'm not joking about that. It is absolutely insane. The IITs, there are now 30 of them, I think. There were originally only five. Uh, and those new 25, they're not considered to be as good as the original five, with, I would say, good reason. But the original five IITs had extremely, extraordinarily high standards of admission. And 
in order to get in these days, you really have to take a lot of extra tests and, and tuitions because they have their own entrance exam. The joint entrance exam system is, it sits on top of the uh, ISC, the Indian Secondary Certificate or whatever it's called. Um, that is an extra set of stuff that you have to do just in order to be considered. And the cutoffs are just ridiculous. I mean, it's above 95% now, uh, you know. In the US, if you get a 95%, you're magna cum laude, right? In India, if you get 95%, it's like you're not good enough to get into the top technical institutes in a country. That's how difficult it is. So this is the kind of competition that the West is dealing with. Now, what does this mean for the longer term? Well, for one thing, it means that the West is led by idiots, as I've said repeatedly. It's led by capricious children who have no understanding of how anything actually works. If you look at the West's leadership versus Chinese or Russian leaders, the West thinks very short term. The ability of these leaders to get away with some of the stupid ideas that they've come up with in terms of green energy policy, a unicorns and fairy dust foreign policy, a completely financialized economic policy has been subsidized by the rest of us who have degrees in hard science and mathematics and engineering who understand something about the way the physical economy works. I'm not saying I do, but people of my background do. These people are the ones who keep the lights on, who keep the water running, who keep the grocery shelves stocked with produce. These people who have real backgrounds in real stuff I mean, make no mistake, farming, for instance, requires enormous levels of skill and sophistication these days. If you want to run a modern industrial farm, which is really the only way to produce food on a mass scale, organic farming is not going to get you there. If you really want to be good at farming, you have to have a degree of knowledge and ability that farmers of the past, a hundred years ago, did not need. There are specialized schools designed specifically just for farming. And they produce amazing, absolutely outstanding graduates with a wealth of technical knowledge. I mean, these are people who understand exactly how to put a backhoe to work, who understand how to put a seed spreader to work, who understand what those huge agricultural combines are doing, uh, combine harvesters are doing when they get out in the fields. These are people who understand crop dynamics, who understand weather patterns, uh, meteorology, they understand water tables, they understand uh, farming finance. I mean, why do f farmers pay off, um, pay off interest on a, an annual basis only, not every month? Why do they do that? There's a reason for it. I mean, it just makes economic sense for them. And they have to plan ahead, sometimes years in advance, to figure out what their crop yields are going to be like in years to come. These are people who understand how to plan for every possible contingency because that's how their minds are trained to think. Not just through the rigors of daily farming, but through the educations that they've gotten in real schools that do real things in the real world. There are schools that train people in uh, like geo the economics of oil exploration. And these are really smart, capable people. These are mineral engineers, you know. 
I, I think I know somebody actually who has a background in mineral engineering. One of the smartest people I've ever met. He's an MD of something, um, head of risk somewhere. Really smart guy. The, but if you look at his university, I mean, no name university, supposedly, and yet they train really good, really, really good people. This cycle of stupid people rising to the top, overly qualified idiots rising to the top is going to continue until the West collapses. Meanwhile, in Eurasia, where they don't have this problem, and they have people who are trained to think, like actually think through some of the ideas that they're proposing, these people are going to get ahead. They're going to do well. Even if you look at just what we would consider a fluffy bunnies and unicorns degree in the West, psychology, I know from personal experience that the level of rigor and sophistication and mathematical modeling required in psychology degrees in Moscow, in the Moscow State Institute for Psychology and Psychiatry, or whatever it's called, I'm butchering the name, but there's a specific school in Moscow that deals with this stuff. They have a degree of sophistication involved in the pedagogy of that subject that you will not find in the West. They'll talk, they'll spend lots of time talking about, oh, well, you know, this school of thought and that school of thought, and here's this development. Here's how you deal with somebody with, through cognitive behavioral therapy, and here's how you deal with somebody through physical therapy. Those guys take it to a whole new level. What is going to happen in the future is that you will see the West continue to decline further and further as its leaders become ever more irrelevant, ever more disconnected from the real world of real things, from the resource-based economy. And you're going to see the people who actually have connections to the real economy get ahead. What you're seeing in Russia and China in particular are people with actual competencies in the things that they're supposed to be managing in their portfolios getting ahead. Now, does that mean that that's how it always works? Of course not. I mean, look, China is a nepotistic corrupt state, just like Russia is a nepotistic corrupt state. But the nepotism and corruption do result in people with engineering degrees getting up into places where engineering degrees are useful. Because everybody in China has an engineering degree. I mean, it, most of the top leadership has some sort of engineering degree. In Russia, yes, the Siloviki of President Putin are his close personal friends. Yes, Sergei Shoigu is not actually a general. He's not. He doesn't have a background in military science. And yet, he's known as an exceptionally competent administrator, a very capable leader. So, even though he doesn't have a background in this stuff, he knows how to get the best out of his deputies. He knows how to rely on somebody like, uh, what's his name? Gerasimov, the head of the armed forces. If you look at the generals that Shoigu is surrounded with when he goes on his visits to the front lines, and he popped over the front lines recently, and you look at the people surrounding him, I mean, these were proper military hard asses. There were people sitting at the table around him, listening to him. He was dressed in military fatigues. There was no ostentation or anything about him. He was just dressed plainly like one of the, one of the men. And he was surrounded by like three and four star generals, you know, people with decades of experience. And these guys did not treat him with contempt. Their body language was attentive and respectful. 
you could see these like lantern-jawed, big, beefy, brick shithouse types standing around him, basically saying um, that they were ready and willing and happy to execute the orders, and here's what they need to do it. These guys were like really strong, capable guys, and they're basically listening to somebody without a military background because he's listening to them. That's a level of skill that you don't find in the West. You've got complete non-entities and nobodies like, coming in and giving speeches about how the British army needs to be ready to fight the Russians in, in a continental war in Europe. Are you, are you freaking joking? I mean, the British can barely stand up a single brigade of combat-ready troops with all the logistical support necessary, with all the combat capabilities necessary to support them in a continental war. And you're going to send them with a country with a hollowed-out industrial base that has no ability to manufacture weapons in the kind uh, of scale that is necessary, necessary to sustain an industrial war in Europe. And you're going to send them up against an industrially-backed nation like Russia's? Like, what is wrong with the people who come up with this nonsense? It's astonishing. These people say things without ever having the skill, the qualifications, the abilities, the experience, the common sense necessary to realize what is going on in the real world. They have no clue. And it's going to get worse. As long as this system of incestuousness is permitted to continue, and I'll finish off with this one thought, because this comes from Larry Johnson in his roundtable with Gonzalo Lira, Andrei Martianov, and Alexander Mercurius, which is like, I mean, wow, you know, you, you don't get much better than that. That was astonishing. It was a really good discussion. Larry Johnson pointed this out, that the royalty in Europe became inbred over time. There was physical inbreeding going on, which resulted in just really weird-looking people and, and complete imbeciles ruling over great European powers because cousins kept marrying cousins and it was all a way to keep the royal blood intact and, of course, inevitably, you know, that four or five generations hence, the descendants are drooling morons. Well, the same thing is happening intellectually today. The people who come through these universities, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, LSE to a large extent, um, all the Ivies, I mean, Dartmouth, Brown, you know, all of these, Princeton, all of these universities, they're supposed to be the best and the brightest. They're really not. They all end up thinking the exact same way. They all end up wanting to work for McKinsey or Bain or BCG. They all end up wanting to work for an investment bank or for Google, Apple, Facebook, Netflix. They all end up going into the same exact circles. They live in the same areas. They're surrounded by the same people. They think in terms of a bubble. Everything that they believe is curated for them. This is intellectual incest, and it's breeding generation after generation of intellectual imbeciles who have no understanding of the way the real world works. Some of them will wake up because they'll have been beaten into submission by the world, like I was. Some of them will figure it out for themselves and walk away from that. But the vast majority of them will say, will stay stupid and blind. And they will suffer for it when the downfall of the West comes. And it's coming. It's, in many ways, it's already here. We're already watching the West fragment and disintegrate before our eyes. 
Well, uh, I've talked for quite long enough. I hope this was useful and educational. And the title, as you know, is a reference to the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall. Never been a big fan, but it is what it is. Thank you, as always, for listening in. I appreciate your patronage and your time. Be sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe, and I will talk to you on the next one. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 102. We don't need no education, and this is Didact signing off.